Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Thursday, August 26th. It's just moments away. Oh, Ben. All right. All right. But before we do this, we need to thank our sponsors. Sponsors like SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, their sponsors, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke, it's true, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Check out the latest. Surprise, surprise, he rips Mayor Rahm Emanuel. Whoa. (laughs) What? (laughs) Crazy. Whoa. (laughs) Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com. And uh, if you want to help out this program, you can. Chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. There you can become a binhead. That is what we call avid listeners of this program, binheads. You can become a binhead. Find out more. Chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A. V is in victory. S-K-Y. Before we get the show going, Ben, I forgot to play this clip while we had our dear friend Miles Camp Lassen on. So let me uh, make good, as they call in the business. <laughs> <laughs> He's a Whitney Young Dolphin. The Ben Jarofsky Show starts now. <laughs> It is Thursday, August 26th, and yes, still live from my apartment and his attic, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. And now your host, not a Whitney Young Dolphin, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this No More Nazis Thursday, and here's why. I'm going to be very brief with my opening remarks because my first guest, Sarah Lazar, is standing by, ready to go on. She's got a lot to say, and I, I really want to hear what she has to say. But I got to get this off my chest, ladies and gentlemen. We talked about this briefly yesterday. The story broke uh, while we were on the air. I believe we were on the air with uh, Young Miles when this story broke. Uh, uh, Dennis Miles, Conflassen, the star of Indies Times. <laughs> Proud graduate of Whitney Young, uh, where he swam like a dolphin. Miles Kamflassen did. Uh, anyway, uh, the Fraternal Order Police President Johnny Canizera, who's so far to the right that he falls off the earth, uh, is infuriated because uh, Lori Lightfoot, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, is requiring uh, that all city workers, including police officers, get vaccinated. Uh, and uh, he had a few comments he gave uh, to Fran Spielman, the uh, a city hall reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times, who's sort of the go-to reporter for the Fraternal Order of Police. Uh, and this is what he said, and I'm quoting. This story broke while we were in the air yesterday, but I didn't get the full quote uh, until afterwards, and now it's in my beloved bright one. 
home delivered. By the way, I just want to say I did not get the Wall Street Journal today, Dennis. I just want to let you know. Oh, I was wondering. Uh, yeah, no, it did. That was a one shot deal yesterday. Everybody I was talking about it yesterday, somehow or other. When I went to the front porch, I got my Chicago Sun Times, my Tribunal and the New York Times. And there on the porch was the Wall Street Journal. I immediately became a capitalist, immediately began uh, open up a Robin Hood account. None of this happened and immediately ordered Dennis to stop doing uh, work on production and start making investments. And what's the first thing he did? He bought 100 shares of Burger King stock. He got confused. He thought I wanted to get a Whopper and he bought some stock. I know. I- it's all made up. None of that happened. Oh, uh, and also, anyways. in a roundabout way, you stole your neighbor's Wall Street Journal. But go ahead. <laughs> it's kind of what happened. They inadvertently put the Wall Street Journal on my porch, and I read it. And I'm a much wiser person. Although, come on, editorial board of the Wall Street Journal. You guys are the biggest frauds in the world. I'm just going to repeat this one more time. It's going to relate to Sarah Lazar's coming up. They were chastising Joe Biden uh, for re- withdrawing troops from Afghanistan, saying he's no character. You guys work for Rupert Murdoch. Who the hell are you to say anybody has? Who are you to call in the question the character of anybody? You work for Fox. I'm just telling you that. You guys like to think, oh, you know, we're up in the Ivy Tower. and We're all great theorists and we're like in the abstract. We're not connected to anything. No, you work for freaking Fox. Have you ever watched Fox? Have you ever seen their coverage of COVID, for instance? Have you ever heard their coverage of Afghanistan? How it shifted from when it was Trump pulling out troops to Biden pulling out troops? So, I don't know. Wall Street Journal, my one-day experiment reading your editorial page. You're even more pathetic than the Chicago Tribune. And that is saying a lot. Sorry, I didn't mean to go on that tangent. Uh, John Canizera, come on. Now, you know John Canizera. You have no, the police union has no bigger supporter in the city of Chicago than me when it comes to pensions. I will fight for the police to get their pensions all night and all day. And I am at odds with many of my lefty brothers and sisters. I do believe that Chicago police officers have collective bargaining rights. And I do appreciate the fact that they have a union and they negotiate their contract. And I stand by you. City of Chicago has been delinquent on that contract, been dragging that thing out for four or five years. So all that is true. But, dude, you are so freaking to the right. It's hurting your union. It's hurting your cause. So for some reason, because you're a Trumper or a MAGA guy, you always have that instinct, that instinct to defend whatever insanity is coming out of the mouth of MAGA. You did it in January 6th. You got in trouble when your first instinct was to defend the insurrectionists who were pounding cops over the head with hockey sticks. Just imagine if Black Lives Matter protesters in Chicago showed up at a rally with hockey sticks and started hitting cops over the head with a hockey stick. What would Johnny Canizera say then? No, but his first instinct was to tell a boy from WBEZ. I can't remember the reporter's name, so I apologize. Ah, oh, it was just a, you know, just a minor little protest. No big deal. Then he kind of sort of apologized for it. And now that MAGA that always gets you in trouble, John. So the city is saying... You have to get uh, the vaccine vaccination. You're a public servant. You're exposed to the, to the virus. You could expose other people to the virus. We want to limit the spread of the virus. You're going to have to get instead of being like responsible and say, well, we're negotiating this. We want to talk about. It. No, this is what he says. We're in America. God damn it. We don't want to be forced to do anything. Period. This ain't Nazi fucking Germany where they say step into the fucking showers. The pills won't hurt you. What the fuck? John Canizera, I don't know if you have any relatives 
who died in the Holocaust? I do. Like the whole wing of my father's family was wiped out in the Holocaust. What you said was so freaking offensive and so disrespectful to all those people who were slaughtered in a Holocaust to compare Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who I'm no great fan of, Johnny Canizera, got a lot of issues with Lori Lightfoot, but to compare her mandating vaccines for public workers to genocide, it's like so brain dead offensive. And I know MAGA, you reserve the right to offend absolutely anybody that you want to offend. You say you have a liberty, your freedom to do that. And if anybody complains, they're what? What do you always say about them? What's that little line? They always use snowflakes. But I don't know. Canizera, maybe you should think before you open your big mouth next time. Just think. And I'd like to hear a genuine apology this time. None of that BS apology like Mary Miller, the congresswoman from Southern Illinois gave last time. Mag opens his mouth about Nazis and Hitler. Remember what she said? Oh, Hitler was right. And then she tried to, her apology essentially blame liberals for her saying something stupid. So let's hear a legitimate apology. For you go offend everybody who uh, lost either lost their lives in the Holocaust or had family wiped out in the Holocaust. We got a great show today, everybody. Uh, As I said, Sarah Lazar, ace reporter for in uh, in these times uh, will be joining us. And then uh, in the second part of the show, Fritz Kagey, Cook County assessor will be here uh, to defend his office, the assessor's office uh, on their assessment of property. That's a totally, we talk about um, covering all bases here. We're going to go from a conversation about Afghanistan to a, me lamenting my ri- ever rising property tax bill. It'd be interesting to hear how uh, Fritz Kagey uh, defends that. Uh, so Fritz Kagey, we are second guest. Um, but let's start with the first guest, the great Sarah Lazar from in these times. Welcome back, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be back. And the reason I say welcome back is because Sarah was my guest about two weeks ago on a bonus special where we talked about this book, which I'm showing the camera. And of course, nobody can see this except for Sarah. It's the novel that she wrote with her father. Uh, and it's called Testimony. And it finally arrived a couple days before I went on vacation after the interview, Sarah. And I just got to tell you, it's really a fun read so far. I started it last night. I'm just going to uh, read the opening to everybody. Just, you know, Sarah's like, no, Ben, don't. Let's talk. No, no. I'm going to read the opening. Okay. Sam was sweating in the best cheap suit he could afford. Walking down State Street in Chicago, his plan was to enter every restaurant, retail store, coffee shop, and tourist trap in the loop. Three months out of work and all the goodwill of family and friends pissed through. He was down to skipping meals. He had just left what he thought was a decent impromptu interview with a burly man named Desmond in the Green Door Tavern. Cook, waiter, bar back, it didn't matter. That's the opening, a down and out investigator, and he gets caught up in all kinds of uh, shenanigans having to do with utilities. Uh, Sarah is a good read. I, I started it last night, so I urge everybody to check it out. Good job so far. <laughs> so far, Sarah. Well, thank you so much. That means a lot. Yeah, uh, I'm a big fan of mystery books, as I told to Sarah the last time. All right. Um, so what I want to talk about today with you, Sarah, is the essay you wrote for In These Times that uh, really blew my mind. I want to thank you for writing it. It has nothing to do with investigators. It's not fiction. I wish it were fiction. Uh, but it's uh, it has to do with the way, how do I put this, the way our country is spoon-fed information about wars. 
and uh, how we're constantly, I want to say brainwashed or gaslit about what our government is up to, what our president is up to, or what our officials are up to, who are all more often than not uh, too afraid to speak out about the consequences of the wars uh, they launch. And um, you were talking in particular in this one essay about the uh, generals who go on talk shows on a regular basis to critique what Joe Biden's up to or critique what Donald Trump's up to, uh, sort of skipping over the fact that they were the architects of the very disastrous war that uh, both Biden and Trump uh, were trying to uh, figure a way to extricate themselves from. So why don't you uh, take a little deeper dive and talk, uh, get a little more specific uh, about what you were getting out in this important essay. Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to. So we have seen a very Kafka-esque, very disturbing dynamic emerge where the architects of a brutal 20-year occupation that has achieved nothing good and that has subjected Afghan people to night raids and bombings and civilian deaths, those architects are getting to tell the story of what the legacy of that war is and um, what the lessons are that we can learn. Uh, one person who I really want to point to is General Petraeus. He was commander of U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan from 2010 to 2011. He has been everywhere in the press. He has been working all of the major cable news networks. He's quoted all over the place, you know, from the New York Times to NPR. Um, and he is someone who not only has his own reputation as sanitized, but has a conflict of interest. Um, the Intercept reported recently that he is on the board of Optiv Security, which is a military contractor. He's also a partner at KKR, which owns Novaria Group, which holds aerospace manufacturers. But then beyond that, he, from 2010 to 2011, implemented some extremely brutal policies in Afghanistan he oversaw the counterinsurgency strategy that was really rooted in protracted occupation. Um, he loosened the rules of war. He gave soldiers a wider berth to do things like fire artillery, carry out night raids, um, destroy homes and buildings. And he oversaw an increase in night raids that are really horrific. I mean, night raids are when you know, U.S. troops break into someone's home in the middle of the night. It's a source of all sorts of trauma and horror. And he also oversaw a dramatic increase in airstrikes. So this person who has a direct financial interest in the war continuing and who had a hand in escalating the war is now hitting all of the different media circuits to argue that the withdrawal from the, the war is irresponsible, that we should really continue the U.S. military presence. And when people say that with no clear path towards getting out, that's really tantamount to saying that they want open-ended occupation. Um, you know, I'm picking on Petraeus because he is someone who really is good at working the media. Um, he has a long history of doing so. Um, during the Afghanistan war, he, uh, you know, would go and defend what was happening. So at a July 2011 uh, address at the Forum for a New Diplomacy in Paris, he declared that things were going great, that the Afghan army and police forces were credible, um, that 
they were taking more responsibility from NATO allies and that, you know, things were in good shape. And we clearly know that that's not the case, which as evidenced by how quickly the Afghan government fell. I mean, talk about a government that has no legitimacy or credibility. Um, But also he was privately holding positions that were different from what he was saying publicly. So we know from the Afghanistan papers, which were, um, you know, government documents that were obtained by the Washington Post, that uh, privately in 2017, General Petraeus told government interviewers that he was a bit more pessimistic. And this is a quote. He said, I knew it was going to be a longer process. I had no expectation that we would be able to flip Afghanistan. So, you know, I would like to make the case that it is not the general Petraeuses of the world that we should be listening to right now. He he's, uh, wasn't entirely truthful. He's conflicted. He has his own reputation to take care of. But rather, we should listen to the people who were right about the war, um, the people who were protesting, you know, September 12, 2001, saying our grief is not a cry for war. We don't want war. That's not going to make anything better. Um, why are we giving the microphone to the Petraeuses of the world when we should instead be talking to the people who got it right? Well, that what there, you gave me a lot uh, to uh, ask questions about, Sarah. That was quite a riff. But that last point, I, I got to just comment on it. Why don't we listen to the people who are right about the war? Uh, yes, 100%. And they were all lefties. So that answers your question. And it just seems to me, and get your thoughts about this, that when it comes to national conversations about the policies, uh, in particular foreign policies and uh, military uh, and launching wars and military intervention, the folks who are most critical of the foreign policy initiatives in the United States are the ones, the last ones to be listened to. It's, I, I feel much the same way about covering municipal financing in the city of Chicago. The stakes are much lower. But people who are critical about how we raise money in Chicago and how we divvy up the pie are the last people <laughs> are the last people who get listened to. And why is that in your humble? I have my own theories, but why is it, why is our country so uh, resistant to the point of hostility to the worldview of I don't know the Noam Chomsky's of the United States, the people on the left who are almost in invariably correct when the years are done and we see the impact of the wars that the powers that be the masters of war launch. Why is there such hostility uh, to the left in your humble opinion? Wow. That's a really big question. And I don't know that I could definitively lay out all the reasons. (laughs) I will say that, you know, the U S is the biggest military empire the world has ever seen. We have 800 military bases around the world. We have, troops deployed in in huge swaths of the globe, Um, that military apparatus comes with humongous budgets, a huge industry, and an incredibly well-oiled PR machine. That that PR machine, um, you know, it emanates from Congress. You know, one of the things that's really... Um, remarkable about the Afghanistan war is it is truly a bipartisan war, truly. The only member of Congress who opposed the invasion was Representative Barbara Lee, a Democrat from California. That was it. it it's 100% bar- bipartisan. You, you can't lay that at the feet of Republicans alone, although George W. Bush certainly has a ton of blood on his hands. Um, 
but yeah, it's a truly bipartisan war. Um, you know, I do want to highlight um, one of the factors that I'm seeing play out a lot with discourse surrounding this latest withdrawal, which is that we have a lot of really well-funded and slick think tanks who trot out their quote-unquote experts in front of cable news shows. Um, and those think tanks are often funded by the weapons industry. And it's this yucky dynamic where companies can essentially launder their own objectives and interests through these ostensibly academic and above the fray and neutral think tanks. Um, and we have seen a ton of people from those think tanks uh, arguing against the withdrawal, arguing for an extension of the war. Um, the Intercept did this really great piece where they basically pointed out that a lot of those, a lot of people who are sort of going in front of cable news um, have direct ties to the weapons industry. So people like former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. Um, oh, wait, I'm sorry, I, I got that wrong. Uh, people like Jack Keane, people like Petraeus, people like Rebecca Grant, people like Richard Haas, um, all these people who are talking heads in this moment um, sort of have direct ties to the military industry. Um, one of the things, I actually just did a story uh, uh, that went up yesterday where I went through the um, investor call, the earnings call of Khaki International. For people who have been following torture and the war on terror, Khaki International is really notorious because they were sued in 2008 by three Iraqis for um, overseeing their torture at Abu Ghraib, which torture included electric shocks, it included sexual assault. So um, Khaki International is already a pretty big villain for people who are concerned about things like that. And I was going through their earnings call, um, which was from August 12th, and they were openly complaining that their profits are being harmed by the Afghanistan withdrawal. They, you know, they use, they use words like headwinds caused by the withdrawal, and a headwind, of course, refers to negative growth. Um, Khaki is also financing um, a think tank called the Institute for Policy, or sorry, the Institute for the Study of War, and, um, you know, Khaki is listed as a corporate sponsor. And this Institute for Study of War is going around saying that we should extend the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan. So this is just an example of how there's really this whole industry behind a lot of the so-called experts and, and um, above-the-fray academics who are weighing in right now. So uh, there's a lot of self-dealings uh, at play here. Uh, people go on TV uh, and they promote ideas that actually benefit them, the companies that they represent. Uh, so it's it's hard to discern what uh, when they talk and they make uh, their comments and suggestions and their advice uh, and uh, they offer up their assessment. It's hard to discern what's actually in the public interest and what's in their private interest. Uh, and... Uh, that's an ongoing problem, and I don't believe it's ever addressed. I don't watch a lot of boob tube, I got to tell you, Sarah, uh, but I, I've, I don't feel I, I've ever seen a uh, commentator ask uh, a general, so uh, what's your side job? You know what's funny? I'm on a tangent within a tangent, but let me, I just, just <laughs> so today I, I started a story talking about uh, 
Johnny Canizera, the Fraternal Order of Police, uh, giving quotes to the Sun-Times, uh, just can't help himself, starts talking about Nazis. Uh, and in that same article, uh, Bob Ryder of the Chicago Federation of Labor uh, gives his opinion about uh, mandatory mandates, which is uh, which is no way similar to the one Canizera offered up. Uh, but the Sun-Times felt compelled. The Chicago Federation of Labor has an ownership stake in the Sun-Times media. And so whenever the Sun-Times quotes somebody from labor in their paper, and that person is part of the, uh, the unions that uh, bailed out the Sun-Times, and thank you unions for doing that, uh, they feel compelled to mention that. As, as though that qualifies absolutely everything. Well, we just, you know, on the, on the safe side. I don't see that happening ever with these generals. You hear what I'm saying, Sarah Lazar? I don't, I do not recall that if that same impulse to make sure everybody understands it's just a possible conflict of interest. Am I missing something? Have you ever seen any news person? Say, uh, well, I just want to point out before we listen to General Petraeus a little more uh, that he is an employee of XYZ uh, who's benefiting possibly from this. Have you ever heard that? I I don't think I've ever heard that from the major media. I can't definitively say it's never happened, but you're totally right that there's this overwhelming trend that those conflicts of interest are not named. Um, and there are so many conflicts of interest. There are... Um, you know, people who are directly on the boards of military contractors and weapons manufacturers. There are also people um, like Michelle Flournoy, um, who is a big sort of foreign policy voice in Washington and was a huge supporter of the Afghanistan war. She founded the think tank CNAS, and CNAS gets funded from the weapons industry. So um, she's also on the board, I think, of a military contractor too, but there, but there are all this also these like other layers in between people sort of directly being tied to companies where organizations still get funding. And I think, I think think tanks should have to disclose that as well. And I think talking heads from think tanks should have to. Um, and, you know, it's funny because, you know, you just mentioned the fraternal order of police. And I, I really think that asking, um, people like General Petraeus asking ex-presidents and top military brass um, to talk about lessons from Afghanistan is kind of like asking police to investigate themselves for wrongdoing. It's a total joke. Those aren't the people who are going to be honest. Um, people are not going to indict themselves generally as a rule. Um, and so now is a really important time to have critical, rigorous, sober reflection on, you know, things like imperial, imperial hubris and bipartisan pro-war consensus. Um, you know, generals are only ever going to see the solution as being more war. Um, we, we need to sort of like really radically alter our thinking in this moment and really actually be talking about how do we stop the next invasion from happening. That is an excellent point. And uh, I fear uh, we're already losing uh, when I read the coverage. Uh, I'm also, um, I want to ask you this question because this is it sort of gnaws at me. Uh, I don't have an answer for this. I don't know if you have an answer for this, but um, I, I fear what's going to happen uh, to people in Afghanistan with the Taliban in charge. I absolutely do. 
everything I read about uh, that regime scares the hell out of me. And I would not want to live there. So I struggle with this. I, I believe that there's limits to Americans' military power. And I never, I can't think of many instances where it was justified or where it really helped anybody in the long term. And at the same time, I'm haunted by the reality of what life is going to be like uh, in Afghanistan. Do you yourself feel some of those same, uh, you know, uh, dichotomies, split views? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I, we definitely shouldn't play down how tough things are in Afghanistan right now. Um, and, you know, I think that the conversation around letting in refugees and opening borders is really important. Um, it's been a little frustrating because a lot of that conversation has been pretty limited. You know, it's, we should only help people who help the United States or worked with the U.S. military. And so my response is like, wait, but what about people who were opposed to the U.S. being there? What about people who were harmed by the U.S.? What about people who lost limbs in U.S. bombing? Um, so I would really like us to really dramatically expand that conversation. Um, you know, I also think that um, there's a big impulse right now to push economic sanctions on Afghanistan. Um, the history of U.S. sanctions on Iraq, on Cuba, on Venezuela, on Iran, on a number of countries shows that sanctions really just bring more death and destruction and don't really work. So I think that we're going to have to really avoid this kind of like reactive, punitive thinking. Um, but the situation with Afghanistan is really tough because um, – you know, to really understand how the situation came to be, you have to look back, not just 20 years, but 40 years to the, you know, the role of the United States in Afghanistan. And um, we definitely should not play down the hardship and difficulty for Afghans. And there have been a ton of Afghans in the diaspora organizing around this groups like um, Afghans for a Better Tomorrow have been holding rallies, um, calling for refugees to be treated with dignity um, but, but that doesn't mean there's a U.S. military solution to what's happening. I mean, you know, the Taliban has more power now than when the U.S. invaded in 2001 and all the indicators were that it was gaining power throughout the war. Um, you know, the U.S. project of invasion and the nation building is clearly just a, a broken project. That's not how you bring real freedom and real um, re real well-being to people. And, you know, there's something, there's something just really cynical and slimy about how media outlets are dealing with this moment right now, because media outlets have just totally ignored the war in Afghanistan. I mean, I think one of the most defining features of this war has been just absolute media silence. It's just became background noise. It became considered not newsworthy at all. Um, Jim Loeb, uh, a journalist, uh, wrote this piece for Responsible Statecraft. The headline is, three major networks devoted a full five minutes to Afghanistan in 2020. Wow. Um, and so, you know, the, but then suddenly, as soon as the war ends, there's all this coverage of the civilian hardship. And we should always care about civilians. We should always care about people suffering from war and the consequences and the blowback. Um, but it, there's just something so slimy and disingenuous about how sanctimonious and self-righteous and, and smug all of these 
publications are being right now because they they enabled a really lethal, really brutal U.S. occupation that carry on for 20 years. Absolutely. I well put. Uh, really well put. I sent you as a homework assignment. I don't know if you uh, were able to complete that assignment. Uh, one thing you're going to learn as you become a guest in the Ben Jarowski show, there are no punishments for people who don't complete the homework assignments that <laughs> I give them, uh, unfortunately. And there's no accountability. But I sent you this essay that some uh, fellow wrote for Bloomberg, I think it was, a right winger. Uh, I just wanted you to get uh, get your response to it. Did you have a chance to read that story? Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, okay, God bless you. Uh, <laughs> you did your assignment. Uh, and so his, he's trying to make the case for why we're uh, – uh, pouring on so much attention uh, to what's going on. And, and the, his argument has sent, it comes down to uh, the, oh my God, his argument is so over the map. Um, but uh, his argument is that it's such a debacle the way uh, Biden uh, is handling it, that it just cries to be covered. Uh, in general, what's your response to the arguments that this gentleman raised? I mean, I think that the I think that the media is covering this from a reflexively pro-war position and that such claims are in bad faith. Um, It doesn't mean that there isn't reason to be concerned. So, you know, I kind of, um, I want to separate this out a little bit because there are those who are genuinely concerned. You know, there there are people who are frantically trying to make sure family members are okay, who are really worried, who are trying to get out of the country. that is real. But then there is a whole class of people who are invoking that difficulty to push their pre-existing agenda of supporting an extension of the U.S. occupation. Um, and those are the, um, you know, there is no shortage of people doing that right now. Like Jake Tapper, for example, who has, who has never questioned the war and has mostly ignored the civilian hardship um, just absolutely grilled uh, Blinken about um, the suffering that's happening right now. And he's not wrong that suffering is happening, but when you're only looking at it from that pro-war perspective, you're never going to see the root causes. You're never going to see the role of the U.S. military presence itself in stoking it. Um, You know, the reality is that the U.S. military presence was very lethal, very violent. You know, I I used to work at Common Dreams, um, which is a progressive media outlet. And one of the things that I did really regularly was write up United Nations reports um, that reported on how many civilians had died that year in Afghanistan. Um, You know, how many died at the hands of the U.S.-backed Afghan government, how many died at the hands of the U.S. And it was just incredibly bloody and none of these people ever talked about it. Um, And that reality was also lethal and was also unsustainable. Um, and you know, um, so I just, it makes my skin crawl a little bit to see all of these people mugging for the camera when they have not cared at all. This war has been going on for 20 years and they, they have not cared. They started, decided to care two weeks ago and, and are patting themselves on the back for it. Yeah, uh, that's well put. And the other thing is that they're looking for an opportunity to show that they're tough on Joe Biden as well, which has absolutely nothing to do with the fundamental uh, problems of allowing the the military free reign. And I'll just point this out before I let you go. I, I said this yesterday, but this one sticks with me. Man, the critical reporting on the pulling at the ending of the war far 
are just like dwarfs. The it, it, it just in contrast to the lack of critical thinking at the start of the war. You know, when we end the war, the anguish this country put the country through. You know what I'm saying, Sarah? And uh, I'll just go baby boomer on you for a moment. They get away with it in part because they ended the draft. Because I'm old enough to remember Vietnam. And the, the amount of resistance across the board to Vietnam was directly, in my humble opinion, uh, related to the fact that everybody was being uh, drafted to fight that war, unless you could get out of it with uh, by saying you're going to college and deferment or that kind of thing. And so the lesson they learned from Vietnam was not, oh, we shouldn't launch these wars, uh, get involved in other countries' civil wars and bomb the hell out of countries. The lesson they learned is, oh, we, we'll do it with a volunteer army. Do you follow what I'm saying, Sarah Lazar? Yeah, and, I do. Yeah. Uh, you know, I will say, um, talk about underreporting. There, ha- there has actually been a GI resistance movement against the war on terror. It definitely isn't of the same scale as we saw during Vietnam. But, um, you know, there, uh, Tra- Travis Bishop was a service member who went to prison for refusing to deploy to Afghanistan um, here in Chicago in 2012. At the NATO summit, um, members of Iraq Veterans Against the War, that's what they were called at the time. Now they're called About Face Veterans Against the War. Um, but, you know, veterans of the war on terror, it included Afghanistan vets. They um, angrily discarded their war on terror medals and protests. They threw them at the NATO summit. They, they did it um, marching hand in hand with a group called Afghans for Peace. That group's name eventually changed, but that's what they were called at the time. But basically the point is that um, it hasn't gotten very much coverage, but there actually has been uh, a small GI resistance movement and anti-war veteran movement um, that had, you know, folks who either were being told to deploy to Afghanistan or had deployed and, and based on what they witnessed, decided I, I was that the ma- war was immoral. I was making a different point and I'll just close by just saying one more time uh if we brought back the draft i think it would be that much harder just to uh for the military to just launch wars all over at at the drop of a hat oh we're gonna invade iraq now oh we're gonna we're gonna go invade afghanistan and stay there for 20 years Uh, jake tapper might be singing a different song if he had was facing being sent over to afghanistan that's that's just what i'm saying the reality uh and I'll just say that from the perspective of an old boomer who remembers uh, thousands and thousands of people in the streets there. And guess what? Those people, when they grew up, they weren't like your dad. They weren't good lefties to the end. They were only lefties for like the 10 minutes in their life when they were facing the draft. I'm just saying it, Sarah Lazar. I'm just pointing it out. Okay. That's just my opinion. Um, Sarah, thanks so much uh, for coming on the show and thank you for the good work that you do. And I'm going to be bugging you for a while because you do a lot of great work in in these times, uh, bringing the issues like this attention. I probably should do a whole show on the Afghanistan papers, which we didn't even get into. So I may drag you back for that because that's fascinating. As Sarah said, the things they say publicly are the different (laughs) big shock here are different than the things they say privately. 
otherwise uh, so, known as lying. Yes, otherwise known as lying. That's the great Sarah Lazar from In These Times. You could check out and get all her uh, follower stories by uh, just Googling In These Times. And uh, she's also, one more time, the co-author of Testimony, a novel. Uh, totally different. It's a mystery book. And if you want to hit, check out uh, Sarah's thoughts on mysteries, radical mysteries, ra- I call it radical noir. I uh, did an interview with her on that topic. Didn't even talk about Afghanistan. Uh, we just talked about radical noir. So she covers the waterfront. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you. All right. That's Sarah Lazar. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Fritz Kagey. Cook County Assessor. I'm going to be moaning and groaning about my property taxes. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from my apartment in his attic. Yes, we're waiting for Fritz Kage, Cook County Assessor, uh, to join us. I just got the text of that. He's about to join. There's Fritz Kage. Looking handsome and dapper as always. Well, ready right back Jarofsky. at you, man. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing well. Fritz Kage is the Assessor of Cook County. Uh, and uh, he's also a proud graduate of uh, Kenwood High School, uh, as he'll usually tells you, like within the first minute of a conversation with you. Uh, yep. And so I'm going to do everything I can, Fritz Kagey, to uh, keep myself from talking about how your beloved alma mater has one hell of a basketball team. I want to give a shout out to Coach Mike Irvin. Uh, they have right. one of the best, go. best players in the country. I think he's ranked fourth in the country right now. His name is JJ Taylor, Chicagoans. Remember that name. But I'm going to tell you about a secret weapon that Kenwood has. Uh, Shoddy Anderson. I see you. Get the ball that Shoddy. He can hit that three-point shot. So I'm looking forward to Kenwood High School basketball. Fritz K. I'm a huge uh, basketball fan and I love high school basketball and your alma mater. I don't know if you, do you still follow your alma mater? I, I sure do. Uh, uh, I, I love it. It's one of the, the keys to my identity. It turned my life around, and uh, I'm a fan. Yeah, no, I, uh, I'm i going to restrain myself. I mean, why? we could talk about basketball, or we could talk about property taxes. <laughs> no, sorry, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> we could do a little bit of both. Suffice it to say is you can't get much more like authentically Chicago than high school basketball and all the traditions that it has. It's pretty great. Yeah. So maybe I'll see you at one of the games this year. I plan to uh, check out Kenwood high school because they, they truly have one of the outstanding teams in the city of Chicago right now. All right, let's get down to the amazing thing since he came in. Oh, so you do. Wow. You are, you do follow good for you. They changed the coach a few years ago. I follow, follow, you know, I, I don't not day to day, but I know enough to be dangerous probably. All right, let's get down to business on property taxes. This has been my obsession for quite a while. Uh, And I'll tell you, Fritz, my obsession with property taxes uh, precedes your uh, getting elected. You got elected in 2018, so you're running for re-election next year. I don't even know if you have a – do you have an opponent? Not aware of one. Okay. Uh, It's really hard to lose an election. Fritz, I'm going to give you a little election advice. It's really hard to lose an election if you don't have an opponent, which is something we may have discussed the last time we were running, uh, as I recall. But we're not going to go back and relitigate those old fights. Uh, In 2003, I want to say, Fritz, I got uh, sticker shock. I live on the north side of Chicago. I live in an area that was when I moved to this my home in 1985, it was I mean, many Northsiders can tell this. It's just a, like a regular, ordinary kind of working class neighborhood on the north side of Chicago. Factories on the block. Uh, prices were relatively low. Taxes were relatively low. Uh, and then uh, within it took about 20 years for gentrification to kick in. And one, 
<laughs> One day I opened my property tax bill, Fritz Kagi, and it had gone from about, I'm doing this off the top of my head, 1500 to 4000 And I was, that's sticker shock. I'm like, God. And that was under daily when he didn't raise the levy. Yes. Okay, now we can, now raising the levy already. And I learned all this stuff, Fritz. I got yeah. so outraged. I learned all, what do you mean, what Fritz Kagi means about raising the levy? Uh, he, I know he um, is smiling when he says that because, of course, they always raise the levy. Um, so I guess I'm going to let you off the hook with the first point that must be made and give you an opportunity to make it. The role that your office plays uh, in this is not, in my humble opinion, uh the role most responsible for the rise in property taxes. In my humble opinion, the rise in property taxes is because educational spending, public school spending is linked to the property tax by and large in the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. And as long as that happens, as long as 52% of our property taxes are being delivered to the public schools of Chicago, because the state's not picking up the money and the feds are in the suburbs even more in the suburbs, we're going to have high property taxes. So I'm going to give you that opportunity to start right there. Go ahead, Fritz. Yeah. So a lot of times people ask why are property taxes high in Illinois? It's because we're dead last in the nation for our state helping to uh, pay the bill for educating our children. And so in our state, more than any other place, um, local school districts are responsible for taxing property to raise the money to educate kids and that right there creates a huge, enormous inequity, even if everyone can agree on assessments. Um, and, 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 a lot of t- and this is why systemically property taxes are so enormous in the South suburbs because they don't have much property value there. But they have to, they, they are on their own. The state leaves them on their own for paying for the cost of educating our children. Um, and um, that, so that you have a, a large amount of money over a small amount of property value and it creates a huge rate. And it's not fair to people in places like Harvey when that happens. So I, when I, whenever I talk to business groups or community groups about talking about how we reduce the inequities in the property tax system, I always start with that first because that is the biggest inequity. But then we don't want to stack even more inequity on that by having distorted assessments, which can further warp and distort how we divide up the cost of paying for education. Um, so my role is to eliminate those distortions so it doesn't. it's not even more inequitable than it was to start with. All right. So let's break it down, and I'm going to keep it as uh, easy to understand as I possibly can because you can make it really complicated or you can make it understandable. Yep. Uh, and a lot, many of my listeners out there are probably renters, uh, and so they're not aware of the property tax system because they haven't even seen a property tax bill. But let me assure you, renters, that uh, the property tax increases in the property taxes are passed on to you in the form of higher rents. So you might as well pay attention to this, even if you've never seen a property tax bill that goes to the landlord. Uh, property tax bill is essentially created by uh, there's like three things, basically. One is um, the value of your property. Uh, two is the tax rate. Uh, it's the tax rate is essentially the same across the board for everybody. So the higher your property is valued uh, compared to everybody else, uh, 
uh, the more you're going to pay relative to everybody else. And that's where Fritz Kagey's office comes in because their, their office is the one who determines the assessed value of your property, how much of your property, how much your property is going to be uh, worth, quote unquote, uh, when it comes to multiplying that tax rate by it. The higher they say your property's worth, the more you're going to pay. Is and that the other it? piece of that, Ben, is that it's not only about you, but your taxes are affected by how other people are assessed because you're all splitting up a pie. And if there's one person who's 50% under assessed, you make up the difference and other people make up the difference. And that's why you know, I think to do a good job here, you gotta be a mirror and eliminate all those distortions because every person has an interest in everyone else being assessed fairly. Absolutely. And uh, I was watching your interview that uh, your assistant, Scott, shout out to Scott, was so uh, dutiful to send to me with uh, Paul Olisnik of WGN, who, by the way, was really rocking it in that bow tie. I'm just saying, Paul Olisnik. <laughs> He's uh, a short dresser. <laughs> God damn. I got to up my game. I, but, I need uh, a better Zoom quality is what I was yeah. thinking. Uh, but uh, anyway, and so... Uh, Paul said something that was an interesting uh, little exchange uh, that you had, uh, or maybe it was you that said it. Uh, rule of thumb, always appeal. I can't remember which one of you said this. Always appeal. So whatever, he, whatever this gentleman says your property is worth or his office or his office's computer, always appeal Chicago. Why? Because big-time downtown developers, they're appealing. And as Fritz Kagey just said, if they win their appeal and get a lower assessment, that means you will pay more in property taxes to compensate for the break the downtown property owners are getting. So this crazy system we have, Fritz Kagey, is rooted in this fundamental, fundamental reality. It pays to appeal. Do you agree with me that's an insane way to run a property tax system? Go ahead. I, I agree. And, and you know, it doesn't work like that in the rest of the country. I don't know how many people here you know, who are watching here today who've lived in Chicago and tried to go into another place and appeal. And they kind of look at you as like, well, this is the data shows your property is worth this, my friend. And even I was I was visiting downstate assessors a couple of weeks ago just to, to you know, to uh, see what what sorts of legislation we could do to improve the system. Even downstate, uh, less than a, uh, 10% of, of parcel owners appeal down there. We really have this culture up here of appealing. Now, I understand why, because data has been way off. Uh, a lot of people didn't have, didn't have trust in this office and other offices for, for good reasons. And you get this sense that the, the, that the system at different levels is, is rigged, so you might as well play along. Um, and so I understand that behavior from the point of view of the homeowner, it can make sense. But the key to fixing this is really making sure that our assessments are more on the dot. We're eliminating those distortions from the start. And then we try to make sure we have good enough evidence that we don't have new distortions introduced by appeals by those big property owners. Um, you know, we came in, there was a study shown looking at all the big commercial properties that traded hands in 2018 they were 40 or 50% underassessed in Cook County and Chicago as a whole. 40% across Cook County, 50% in Chicago. And it was even worse than that. The bigger your property got, 
the more underassessed you tend to be. And the more you're in, out in the neighborhoods, the, the more closer to the mark you're assessed was. So it was like regressive in a couple different ways. And our goal is to, to, to narrow that gap, to eliminate that gap, to make sure we're using good data, assessing at, uh, assessing at market, because we can there, thereby reduce the homeowner's share of, of the burden that they've had to take on because of that underassessment. And we don't do it just because we're playing favorites. We're doing it because that is, we're, we're trying to be a good mirror to the market and folks who are not insiders in this world always got the short end of the stick. And it was really impactful. I, I estimate just that disparity on commercial might have cost the average Chicago in a thousand bucks a year um, on their property wow. tax bill. So well, it's, it's, it's really enormous and consequential. And what we've been doing is we reassessed the South suburbs last year. We reduced homeowners share of the burden by two percentage points. Uh, the previous year in the, in the Northern suburbs, we did the same. And we're now reassessing Chicago, and we expect that to continue. Well, one of the complaints I've been hearing um, uh, is from business owners, commercial owners. When I uh, reached out to people, say, "Hey, Fritz K, he's coming on my show. What do you want him to ask him?" And they go, "We're getting, we're getting creamed. We're getting reamed." He's giving these breaks to the homeowners, and the, it's just passing the burden over to commercials. And a lot of us are small-time uh, business owners. We don't have the money. Uh, we don't. We don't have the. We can't hire Ed Burke to represent oh, Ed Burke's out of business these mm-hmm. days, but uh, we can't hire Mike Madigan's law firm. We can't hire John Cullerton's law firm. You know, we, we, we can't play with the, the, the mayor major players in this operation. We're getting cream. What's your response uh, to business owners who say that you're uh, unfairly passing uh, the burden onto them? Well, I, I disagree with the premise um, because first of all, like when there have, we, we looked at COVID last year and we saw the devastating effect that it had on, lots of different kinds of commercial properties, lots of businesses, and we leaned into it. And we, you know, we, we did that because we saw the effect it would have on the small hotel owner, the owner of a theater, the owner of a, of a retailer in the South suburbs. We know how those communities live on the edge. And that was the whole reason why we, it made no sense for us to send out assessments that didn't take that into account. So, um, and we made adjustments to small businesses and in, in neighborhoods uh, out in Jefferson park and, Jefferson and, and uh, Southwest side. So, you know, I, I disagree with the premise there. The key is that all commercial is not the same. You need to look at, you know, I grew up in this, grew up on the South side, you know, from, from Kenwood, 43rd street is different from 53rd street is different from Stony Island is different from 71st street. And you need to be able to differentiate and those businesses there deserve to have a differentiated approach from there versus what you have going on. Uh, elsewhere or in, in more pros- in more prosperous areas. Um, and having good data is really important to that. And just being mindful of the difference is important because like I said, the fewer distortions we have, the better off. And, and I think small businesses have not been well served by the system because the data that our office had, it seemed to create this disparity where we're under assessing the biggest properties in, the, the lower ones tend to be relatively over-assessed. The smaller ones tend to be relatively over-assessed, and that wasn't fair to them. So you don't want to mix fish and fowl, but, like, overall, overall, especially the bigger properties downtown, they were very under-assessed when we came in, and everyone else is making up the difference, including those small businesses. 
All right. Uh, before I go uh, into the neighborhoods and talk about uh, the impact of gentrification, since you're raising the issue of uh, uh, downtown properties and the assessment, I'm going to get right to my pet peeve. And I think you know what's coming. One of my pet peeves, I've written about it like three or four times, uh, Fritz, is this really this really gets me going. I'm just my my juices are flowing as this I think mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to be calm and re- rational and everything. But part of the game that's played, and it's right on display with a certain Trump Tower, right there in the banks of the Chicago River, that our city leaders enabled Donald Trump to put his freaking name on the side of that building, which really just gets to me every time I see that name there. Okay. Well, that name is a deterrent, apparently, to the people who own a building are trying uh, to rent it out, rent out the commercial spaces, et cetera, because, duh, people don't want to be affiliated with Donald Trump in the city of Chicago. He's perhaps the most unpopular politician in the city of Chicago. I can make that argument, Fritz Kagey, uh, that Donald Trump is the most unpopular uh, politician in the city of Chicago. So if you put his name on your building, that is a deterrent to renting out your building. They turn right around and ask for the county assessor and the, 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 to lower their assessment the, the amount that they're taxed at because they can't rent the building. You can't rent the building because you got that freaking name out there. So, Fritz, I'll never understand how they get away with both. Either take the name down, in which case you might be able to rent out that vacant space and you'd be applauded, uh, or stop begging for a handout from the taxpayers of Illinois because you want to essentially polish Donald Trump's ego. Address well, that issue. Well, Ben, this is a, a subset of a bigger problem that in the past, our assessment system, the policy was that if your building was vacant, we're going to reduce your assessment. And if you kept the building 100% vacant, under the old policy, they'd reduce your assessment by 90%. And it was bonkers, man. We So I just mentioned 71st Street. This is a great classic commercial corridor in South Shore. And we talked when during our transition, we talked to the the Chamber of Commerce there and they said, your policy, the policies of your office. And this was, you know, my predecessor, uh, the policies of your office are incentivizing vacancy, that there are people who are buying properties, stashing them, not keeping them occupied and waiting to make the money on the appreciation of the underlying land while they minimize their tax. Um, And this was going on all over. You talked to. Michelle Smith, Alderman of the 43rd Ward, you go up to Six Corners on the northwest side, you go all over, you hear these complaints and people talking about it. Like Clark Street um, in uh, in Lincoln Park, there are all these vacant spots. Why? Well, they were incentivizing vacancy. So we changed that. We we put in place a change in the policy last year that said that we're going to give credit to every building in the area for the neighborhood vacancy rate, whether it's 100% occupied or not. And if you have additional vacancy, we'll give you temporary partial credit for it, but not the whole thing. Um, and by the way, we're gonna all, when we value your building, we're gonna value it as if we were a typical buyer. So you can set yourself on fire, you can make your place reek or whatever, but a typical buyer is not gonna do that. And they're gonna build in more reasonable expected rent and vacancy rate into what they do. And I'm not going to single out any particular building, but Trump Tower might be a pretty good example of where 
you know, we're going to look at how other buildings like it in terms of their dollar per square foot uh, for retail space, for hotel space and office space are just like any other place in the neighborhood. So, Fritz, are you telling me that Donald Trump, uh, or Trump Tower, I should just say, is paying more in property taxes now than it was uh, when you took office because of these changes? Well, we get to reassess Chicago this year. A lot of people don't know that uh, there is a, a three-year cycle to reassessing the county. So, and the schedule is determined by the state. So we reassessed suburbs the last two years. This is the most important year for our reforms because we're reassessing Chicago. And then it'll affect their taxes next year. We'll be sending out assessments in uh, the township that includes um, Trump Tower pretty soon. Um, and uh, I myself don't know the answer because we have a valuation team that makes those valuation decisions themselves. But I expect, you know, we'll all know about this in the next month or so. Can you assure our listeners that when Donald Trump's lawyers, and it's no longer Ed Burke, I should say, uh, Ed Burke, I don't think has any property tax business, but Ed Burke, former finance uh, chair of the city council, um, one of those powerful aldermen in the city of Chicago, as everybody knows, ran a very, uh, uh, very um, successful property tax business for a while. Big surprise there. Uh, and he represented Donald Trump. Why, so why you, do elected officials always as a side gig pick this? Pick this industry, Ben. It's it's the strangest coincidence. <laughs> anyway. oh, that's a whole other side uh, conversation. But uh, let's just pause to point out that the Speaker of the House, Michael Joseph Madigan, uh, the former Speaker of the House, I should say, has a property tax business. Uh, the former President of the State Senate, John Cullerton, had a property tax business. The most powerful alderman in the Chicago City Council, who oversaw every TIF deal, we'll get into TIFs in a little while, and, and all city budgets, had a property tax business. If before you came on, uh, Fritz Kagi, we were talking about conflict of interests with uh, generals who go on the TV shows. What they work for defense firms and they advocate war in Afghanistan mm-hmm. or, or Iraq without telling the the TV guy. Oh, by the way, I work for uh, this think tank or this uh, this arms manufacturer. So yes, these are conflicts of interest. So are are you going to assure our listeners? That whoever, when Ed, when uh, Donnie Trump's lawyers come in with their cockamamie argument uh, for their, to get their assessment lower, that they can't rent out. Are you going to go tell them, guy, get that name off that building and see how you rent the property? You're going to tell them that when they come before your group, before they come? I'll put it this way. We're not going to build in the negative effect of Trump into the value or any other kind of self-inflicted thing into the value of a building um, that because a buyer wouldn't do that. So, uh, you know, what I, what everyone should know, and I don't know if everyone knows we, when I ran as the assessor, I've never taken a campaign contribution from these lawyers and appraisers who practice before the office. I'm the first Cook County assessor to do that. Um, the public is sick of that stuff. Um, I think a lot of the folks who did this and it was tolerated before people look the other way, they don't tolerate that in the same way before. I think there's a lot more scrutiny. We have a visitor's log. Anyone who's coming in can see. So if these wise guys come in, they're going to have to sign in there. So you'll know if they come in and you can ask me about it. We put up uh, a couple portraits of my passive aggressive Swiss ancestors on the wall and they look very stern. If you try to come up with those BS uh, arguments. And a lot of these guys, they create these appraisals that try to argue that a bacon double cheeseburger is really a salad. 
Um, and uh, we've got really good um, valuation team guys that can see through that. Our rules do not allow those bogus appraisals uh, anymore. Um, and uh, our analysts don't see the identity of the lawyers in the appeals anymore. It's anonymized. So well, we've tried to eliminate any perception that some wise guy can get you a special deal. You should hire, if you're going to hire one of those lawyers, you, should, you might as well hire them like you hire an investment manager, an accountant, and like, you know, some guy who's an alderman is probably not going to be the, the best data analytics guy you can find. All right. Uh, and I, I'd like to point out that there's a bulldog investigative reporter at the Chicago Sun-Times named Tim Novak, who's been all over this story for years about Trump Tower and the deals they've gotten, uh, thanks to Ed Burke, uh, <laughs> looking out for Donald Trump. I'm sure Tim Novak will be watching this one very carefully to make sure uh, that this Please. doesn't go uh, further. Uh, so Tim Novak. Like that scrutiny. That scrutiny is good. All right, so let's talk about, that's the future. Let's talk about the past right now. And I, I owe a thanks, a tip of the hat to Novak because he's the one who broke this story. And you followed up with an essay in the Sun-Times that you wrote with Barbara Flint Curry, uh, another uh, Hyde Park resident. Anyway, um, where you were talking about past breaks that Trump Tower got uh, and how right now Trump, it's, it just, my blood is boiling. Uh, he's looking to get a handout from the taxpayers. I've, I'm not doing it off the top of my head about a million dollars. I want to say Fritz, correct me. I'm wrong with the exact yeah, amount. The Chicago public schools are going to have to write a check out of their bank account to Donald Trump. Um, or the, the total amount is a million dollars across the taxing body. So it'll be like more than half a million bucks for the schools. And he's getting that money, arguing that he can't rent his buildings. So are you, retroactively, are you going to raise the, the sign defense? In other words, well, right now he's looking for a check for a million dollars from the public school children of Chicago uh, because he's got because he couldn't rent that building with the sign on it. Are you going to well, use that argument so, retroactively? Go ahead. I mean, Barbara and I, we wrote this because this body is so bonkers. So we have if, you know, at a certain point, there's a certain point where having appeals uh, you know, it, it addresses errors. It addresses injustice. You can appeal at the assessor's office, appeal at the board of review. But then there are these other venues. Um, and in uh, in the dead of the night, in 95, in a Republican-controlled General Assembly, without hardly any debate except for Barbara raising her, her loan voice along with a couple others, um, they extended PTAB as this other fourth venue to... Uh, to Cook County. And this case for, for the Trump Tower that you're talking about, it dates to like 2012 or 2011. So there could be more bites at the apple because they get, they have this giant backlog that's accumulated where uh, everyone, you know, after they get their bites at the apple at, at, at different levels, they're, they're going for another bite of the apple at PTAB. And there's this backlog of years and years and the outflow from taxing bodies has grown 20% per year compounded. That is a disaster. That is a ticking time bomb. And we don't even know the cost of it yet slowly because they've got this big backlog. So there's this unknown contingent liability for all our taxing bodies. And all this body does is make it more inequitable. All it does is reduce the share of the pie for the biggest property owners at the expense of everyone else and drains cash from you know, cash strap taxing bodies and guess who makes up the difference? Everyone else. So like, this is like, you know, as we called it, like the, the, the shining example of systemic, it's the ultimate example of systemic inequity 
only furthering, it doesn't exist for any good purpose in Cook County. Now, downstate, um, it's it acts more like a second venue than a fourth. So I, I see the argument for downstate, but in Cook County, it's entirely unnecessary and it should be done with, like clear the decks. You use the acronym PTAB. What does that stand for? It stands for the Illinois Property Tax Appeals Board. Yeah. So and they our, created you know, a third board. <laughs> and it uh, was... I mean, it was a thing that existed in the seventies for downstate yeah. uh, bodies. And uh, then it was extended to Cook County, the dead of the night with hardly any debate. A couple of years later, the Senate passed a bill, you know, taking it out of Cook County because they realized what a disaster it was going to be. The mayor, mayor Daly supported getting it out of there. Uh, uh, Cesar Houlihan supported getting it out of there, but you know, it didn't get a, get a vote in the house. Um, guess why? Um, but you know, this is this. We're, we're now seeing the toll. This experiment has been a disaster. Let's be done with it, so we don't have this crazy ticking time bomb, this engine of inequity just hanging out there, making a system that's already in really bad shape even worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, when you said guess why, I assume what you were getting at is that the Speaker of the House was Michael Joseph Madigan, uh, who has his own property tax business. Is that what you were sort of suggesting? I, I would that? imagine that might have had something to do with the fact that he didn't get the vote. Although Barbara Frank Curry sponsored the bill, um, and she was the person who originally spoke against it, and she was an ally of his. But I think he recused himself, and when the Speaker who, who decides when you vote... Um, doesn't want it. I'm going to guess that had something to do. Yeah, they, yeah ally, schmally. He's got a property tax business he's got to take care of. Sorry, Barbara Flynn Curry. Uh, that's how the game is played uh, with Michael Madigan. All right, let's move on to gentrification and the impact. There was an article in the Sun-Times, I think it was Monday, Tuesday. I can't remember which days are piling together. Uh, residents uh, and uh, property owners in, in Pilsner are outraged uh, because they got that same sticker shock. I got it. Uh, about uh, 15 years ago, because when gentrification hits, what it does, ladies and gentlemen, your property goes up in value, even if your income hasn't gone up in value. So they're taxing you on your property as though you could afford it on the marketplace. And the reality is when I bought my house, my reader's salary back in 1985, wasn't even working for the reader yet, uh, I could afford it. I could not afford my house in 2004 when I first got that sticker shock. That's just the reality. My income did not keep pace with the rising costs of my housing, to which the powers that be in a free market world will say, well, tough luck. You just got to go sell your house. I'm like, Mm-hmm. Uh, how could you be for forcing me to sell my house? You guys are the same people making the argument that I shouldn't, you shouldn't be forced to wear a mask for crying aloud. Now I've been forced to sell my house. Oh my goodness. So uh, what's your response to the people in Pilsen who are waking up with sticker shock, Fritz K? Well, gentrification is, uh, a, it is a double-edged sword. And it's one of the hardest things we confront. So it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand, your investment Brew. You made money on your investment. Um, on the other hand, uh, your assessment that reflects the market value of your investment also grew and can increase your taxes. Now, one of the things that's always really important to remember is that people assume that a change in your assessment, like if your assessment grows by 50%, that your tax also grows by 50%. Not true, because it is about your share of total assessed value. If the bogey, if all assessed value is also growing by 25%, your tax will grow or 
won't, won't, won't grow by nearly the same amount or maybe even go in the opposite direction. So in the suburbs, the last couple of years, there've been all sorts of places where people's residential assessment grew, but their tax bill fell because they had a smaller share of the levy. So we saw this in a lot of places um, in the South suburbs, about half of uh, uh, half of people's property tax bills went down uh, in this last year, in the season, just, just on, even though assessments for most of them went up. So that's an important thing to, important distinction to remember, because it's not intuitive. Most other places in the country aren't like that. And why is that? It's because your, how, your taxes depend on how other people are assessed. That's like the thing that's different about here. It's why it's so important for us to be equitable. And I don't, I do not like raising people's assessments. I don't like property taxes. I think we ought to have a better way of funding government and funding schools. But given that we do have it, doing this fairly is really important because if, if, if we're going out and telling big building owners that we're assessing you at market value, we have to have the same standards for others. And constitutionally, if I don't do that, all those things that we're doing to make sure that others pay their fair share can be unwound. So, um, you know, it does require a little bit of faith that when your assessment goes up, your tax bill won't go up by the same amount. But all I can say is that's what's happened the last two years. And we don't have a better for solution for this than making sure everyone gets their exemptions. So make sure you get homeowners, senior, especially if you're a senior with an income under 65000 you're eligible for the senior freeze. Um, you, there, and uh, we have a couple of other exemptions too. And you do have the opportunity to appeal if we got that assessment wrong. Like we are a couple hundred people trying to estimate the value of nearly 2 million properties. We're going to make mistakes like any other assessment office could and make sure we get that right. Like a lot of times, especially if someone's owned a house for a long time, they haven't renovated interiors. They haven't put in AC um, and our assessment might not take into account that quality difference from the other things that have sold. And so uh, we can always take another look. I encourage people who, who have seen that big increase in their assessment to, to see if we got that right. People are the experts on their own homes. Yeah. You don't have to hire a lawyer. You bring it to our attention, and we can fix that. Yeah. Uh, although I will say this, and the, the reality, by the way, just to answer your first point that you made, I, took, I jotted it down. Yes, it's good that your property went up in value, but that's really of no consequence for you unless you sell it. And that gets to the right. very point, you know, it was, yeah. Oh, wow. My property. <laughs> I know. Like, Hey man, I bought this thing for a hundred thousand. I can sell for 200,000. Oh, you want to sell your house? Right. No. Well, what good is it? Are you just paying yeah, more it's taxes? Like, it's cash out the door. I, 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 I get it. I get so, it. Uh, you know, and, and this and, is why, this yeah. is why, I mean, we should take a step back and it, it is really unfair that especially, you know, for, for black and brown people where people are just getting a foothold in the middle class that the you have more of your savings invested in your home than richer people do. Richer people, they're invested in other kinds of financial assets like stocks mm -hmm. and bonds and all that other stuff. Yeah. They don't have to pay an asset tax on the stuff that they own. Um, they don't have to worry about this annual, you know, tax on your wealth uh, for their stocks and their other stuff. But for folks who are just getting started saving, we, we have to we have to do this. And really the reason why is our city, our school districts are not given any other tool. And they have to cover all of the costs of educating children without with less help from the state than any other place in the union. So this is why I've spent a lot of time saying not only 
Should the state be finding ways to finance it? So I stuck my neck out to be an advocate for the fair tax amendment, but also uh, federal government has really abdicated on this. You know, A. Philip Randolph, great Chicagoan, called for one of the five pillars of civil rights was federal funding for education for disadvantaged students. Started under LBJ. It's kind of been frozen at the level that it's been at for quite a while. It's called Title I. Well, President Biden, to his credit, is going to double Title I in the budget. And, you know, the CPS gets $300 million in Title I. Their levy is $3 billion. So if they double that, that theoretically could take a big chunk out of the growth in the levy of CPS. And so that's where we can really move the needle and like, by the way, the federal government, they're just, it's 15 additional billion dollars for this. They eat that for breakfast. That's less than what they did to bail out the airlines. Oh, nationwide. So let's, this let's, is a good thing for the buck. And it would have a good effect on wealth. If you look in the South suburbs, if you're taking the pressure off the levy in some of those South suburban school districts, you like a jolt of adrenaline for housing prices down there. Um, uh, by the way, when he, when uh, when Fritz says levy, what he means is the amount of money uh, yes. in property taxes that any taxing body is going to spend. So that's the other part of this whole equation. Well, essentially, how, what goes uh, is that, this, let's say the city of Chicago says we want to spend a hundred dollars this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, so Fritz Cakey figures out uh, how much the property, uh, each individual piece of property is worth. Uh, and then I guess who it was, it's the clerk. It's so freaking complicated. It is complicated, but the way I explain it is like, it's like <laughs> the clerk the, figures out the rate that the you have to apply to yeah. all that assessment to meet yeah. the levy. Are you following these people? And then they <laughs> kick it over to Maria Pappas, who has to write the checks. Right. And every time she writes the check, I've been hearing Maria Pappas say the same thing forever. Don't blame me. I'm just right, the one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the way I explain it is you got the burden which is, the and, and it's not really a burden in some cases, it's the cost of educating our children and paying for all the services that we get in the city. Mm-hmm. And that's like a lump sum of dollars. It grows a little bit every year. And then how do we split that burden amongst us? That's where assessments come in. We only do assessments to figure out everyone's share of that burden that someone else came up with. Yeah. Um, so, but the assessments do not determine the burden that's determined by your schools and your that that is a point that I've heard every assessor make since I've been covering this stuff. Tom Hines, Ben, wait, wait, wait you can't blame me because uh, right. <laughs> Joe Barrios okay. used to tell me that. Ben, don't blame me. Everybody, Ben, don't blame me. Uh, it's a crazy system for Skaggy. You uh, inherited, and now let's add one last piece before I let you go, and that of course is the tiffs. You knew you wouldn't escape the show without me asking you about the tiffs. Uh, it really you talk about things that really grind my gears. Oh, uh, it's folks, terrible, Ben. They're yeah. terrible. Just, just so people know what I'm going to talk about now, follow this one, listeners, because this is how it affects you. TIFs are tax hikes. Why do I say they're tax hikes? Because whenever they impose a TIF, whenever they uh, create a TIF district like the one they did for Lincoln Yards on the near north side of Chicago, what they do is they limit the amount of property taxes that all the taxing bodies can get from that TIF district. And what's the impact? If you limit the amount of property taxes that you can get out of some of the most the gentrifying communities of the city, all the rest of you suckers and saps pay more in property taxes to compensate for the money they're not getting from uh, the uh, Lincoln Yards TIF or any TIF. And what really irritates me, Fritz, is that your office is never called in to discuss 
when the city or the county or a suburb, Evanston's got their own cockamamie tiffs they're coming up with too. They can be be even worse in the suburbs because they can have really unpredictable, concentrated effects on people in the suburbs. Also, because no one's paying attention, but that's a whole other thing. Oak Park, I think you live in Oak Park. Oak Park's got crazy tiffs too. They're wasting money. In Proviso, they have some really bad ones that have have helped to increase the amount of taxes that people are paying. And you're going to get this one on your, don't think you're going to avoid this one. Arlington Heights, when they try to get the bears to come out there hey folks in arlington heights you think the bears are going there without you contributing it's going to be a tiff and they're going to use your property tax dollars to get the give the bears money mm-hmm. and the bears are wretched don't even get me started talking about the bears so this is my question your office is never asked to participate so before the city council votes on a tiff they never say oh cook county assessor what's the impact of this tiff on the property tax that everyone in Chicago will pay. Whenever they raise property taxes to pay for schools, it's funny, Fritz Kagey, It's they always have like, well, this will add $52 to the cost of the mm-hmm. average Shoma. You know, old boy from the Federation or whatever, that downtown civic group, they always have the exact amount. Chamber of Commerce is always yelling at you, Fritz, because they, they don't like you're too hard in downtown businesses. I've never once heard the Chamber of Commerce do the calculations of what their cockamamie Lincoln Yards tiffs and right. the other there's, one they have. There's the always some magic pixie dust to make up for the backdoor tax increase. Right. So does your office have the capability to step in and point out how much the Lincoln Yards tiff, for instance, is adding to the property taxes that all of us in the city of Chicago pay? And what we can do is we've put out tools so that people can see how much uh, property taxes change if you change the base. So, um, for example, um, people can see if we're going to be increasing the value of uh, downtown office buildings by a certain amount, you can see what impact it has on the base. But you can also... Uh, through these tools, you could build in a, a TIF effect to say that, well, let's say half of those office buildings are actually in the TIF, so there's no benefit. That no, no one else in Chicago is going to get a benefit of a lower rate on those half of the buildings that are in the TIF because all that incremental value is cash that goes into the TIF, and it doesn't it doesn't do anything to expand the base for for others. So those are the kinds of things that we can talk about. We can talk about. Um, hey, if you do this, you could be restricting the size of the base um, in, in your area, and that could. And here are the different ways. If you play out with different scenarios, how that could affect people's taxes, and um, uh, that's that's where we can do it. Now, I, as the assessor, I don't want to. Uh, I never want to be have the appearance of uh, using my office's powers to penalize or reward someone who's calling for a TIF uh, or fighting against a TIF. So we assess every building equally, whether it's in a TIF or not. But what we can do is give people tools so they can see what the the impact is. I'm not asking. uh, I respect that point you just made. You don't want to look like you're uh, – opposing let's say mayor uh, was Rahm Emanuel's his idea to have the Lincoln Yards uh, TIF or Lori Lightfoot or what have you or whoever the mayor of Arlington Heights is because you know they're going to give the Bears a tip uh, for their stadium I'm just saying that as a public service 
your office is supposed to provide information to people. And so there's just basic information. You're not making a judgment call as to whether it's a good investment to invest Mm -hmm. money in the bears or to invest money in Lincoln yards or to invest money in whatever that one in the South loop is. I'm Mm -hmm. blanking on the name of it. Uh, You're just saying, this is the amount of money we're investing. This is what's going to cost you people. You, the people can make up your mind, but the way it's always been Fritz is they don't give you the information because they don't want, people in Chicago to know how their money is being spent. That's my opinion. Yeah. Yep. So, and, and, and Ben, the, uh, the area where we could have a bigger uh, influence is actually on the decision of whether you should let a TIF expire. Because when you let a TIF expire, that expands the base and lowers the rate for everyone else. And yet sometimes we see TIFs being renewed and perpetuated without any debates um, and you know that's where our data can really help because we Wait, could say sometimes yeah. I, I wanted I want an example when there was ever a debate other than the yeah. central loop tiff which way before well, your time you're still I live in Oak Park, the, the mayor let the tiffs expire here and that increased the base for everyone so that was good it can happen I know it's, it's kind <laughs> of a crazy scenario to imagine sometimes but I, in I'm Chicago so... it can make a big difference for Chicago taxpayers if they let these tips, which are coming up for expiration in the next couple of years, expire. Bunch of them. In fact, they just, but they just continue one uh, right around where Cabrini Green used to be. Uh, and they just, I just saw they they extended, and they're always extending tiffs. They what they it's they they extend down in Springfield, Fritz, when no one's paying attention. Uh, my, yeah. Michael Joseph Maddox was the maestro of that one, quietly putting tiff extension uh, clauses in the various bills. All right, I'm going to leave you alone in this one. I listen. This is Houlihan, your predecessor, once told me. It was one of these liquid lunches we had from time to time. Mm -hmm. Uh, More liquid for him than me. And he told me uh, that the TIFFs were Daly's funny money. This is way back when. I don't know what you were doing, Fritz. I think this was, you were out of Kenwood High School. You were probably just getting started in business years ago. I was was, was traveling around the world investing people's money. (laughs) Or your investment banker, right. Not an investment banker, investment manager, but... I, I, I know I know people don't make the distinction. Yes, people don't make the distinction. Uh, nobody makes that distinction except for investment bankers and investment managers. Uh, and he told me it's funny money. And I'm like, well, do something about it. Uh, you know, and uh, but see, it's the money that they use to fund the, some of the biggest developers in the city of Chicago, Fritz Kagey. You go up against that. And man, they're going to be clobbering you. You're not going to. Well, Ben, I, I think a lot of the developers, a lot of the people who are buying stuff here, they're not even from here. Like they're, the world wants to beat a path to our door. We, our real estate is reasonably valued compared to the rest of the world. You get a 5% yield, 6% yield on a building that looks pretty great to someone in Europe or Asia who's getting like 2% on a bond on a good day. Um, so, a lot of the people from the rest of the world, they don't want this nonsense with elected officials and tips and they don't want to hear that idiosyncratic stuff. They just want it. They just want to know that, okay, if we can invest our money here, what kind of return do we get? What are the risks are? Um, and they'll be happy to pay uh, a, a higher amount than some of the, you know, the locals uh, might've been paying for these things. And so like, and I think there are also developers out there who they want their competitive advantage to be building stuff that people like, seeing the future before it happens, um, executing well, providing good service. And 
they don't want their competitive advantage to be like, oh, I know how to work the TIF system better than the next guy, or I know who to hire for my properties. Like, cause that's not a transferable competitive advantage. So I don't, I think, you know, take a second look, you know, Chicago's changing a lot. A lot of the old hinky stuff uh, people aren't as comfortable with, and it's, it's not served us well, honestly. I think Chicagoans have realized that you might think you're better off with some of these idiosyncratic things that we have here that are, that are not transparent, but ultimately in the end, you're made worse off. It worsens inequality. It's not transparency. It enhances corruption. Let's have like a more level playing field where everyone come in, can come in, make sure we got, you know, guardrails so that people aren't pushed out. Um, and, and then like, that'll be a fairer system and, and more wealth can, can get outside of downtown and the rest of the city too. All right, fair enough. We'll leave it there. I'll uh, I'll, with, I'll I'll restrain myself and not go into a <laughs> diatribe against uh, certain Chicago developers uh, who haven't learned that lesson. And I will be watching uh, Arlington Heights. I'll be watching you guys with those Chicago Bears because I know they're going to get that big bear paw out because you know they're not going to go in their honey jar for its keggy to build that stadium. They're going to want to. And you know what? Part of me doesn't care. If the people in Arlington Heights want to raise their taxes to, to give money to one of the worst teams in the history of the NFL, and I say that, I really believe that as a football fan, the Bears are one of the worst. If they want to reward mediocrity, God bless them. You know, Fritz, there's nothing. I got enough trouble with the city of Chicago. Go ahead, Fritz. Man, in, in Arlington, Texas, you know, they, they, they built a new stadium like 20 years ago under George Bush. They just built a new stadium to replace yeah. that stadium, and they, and they got subsidies again. I mean, you know, hopefully we can come to our senses around here. And All right, very back. good. Uh, and uh, Fritz, thank you very much. Uh, for, do you like the job, Fritz, four years in? Uh, three years I do. In? I do. It, it, it uses a lot of my skills. I like all the different ways that it, it touches on different communities, brings together different parts of my life. And we got a great team of people. I like serving, serving people. I mean, the job is doing a good job in this office is being a good steward and, and valuing things correctly and like not letting things get distorted and, and providing better service. So that is, that is good. People have been great in supporting us in our efforts and they know it doesn't happen overnight. Um, but I, I, I love the job. It's a wonderful job. And we're lucky to be here. All right. Very good. And I'll leave with this. Uh, my advice to people who own property in Pilsen appeal, appeal, appeal. That's just the way the game is in the city of Chicago, the County of Cook appeal, appeal, appeal. Fritz Cake, he knows I'm telling the truth. He's got nod in his head. It's a crazy system we have. Fritz, thanks so much for taking time. You gave, uh, it was, uh, always fun for me to take the deep dive into property taxes uh, <laughs> I'm sure many of my listeners would prefer we uh, kept the conversation to uh, uh, high school basketball, but uh, I but we can save that for another day. I always enjoy coming on the show, Ben. It's always a good conversation. All right. Very good. That's Fritz Cakey. He is Cook County Assessor. Thank you very much, Fritz. I also want to thank Sarah Lazar for ending these times. Great job she did talking about uh, the generals who advise us to get into the war and are still advising us to stay in the war. Uh, I also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy at Alton, Illinois, without whom the show would be possible. Uh, and as Fritz and Sarah will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him White Lightning. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't heard that one in a while. 
<laughs> one of my uh, one of uh, a friend of mine sent me a, an email the other day. How come you don't call him White Lightning anymore? Anyway, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. Positively in a in another sense. So this morning, yeah, I tested positively toward negative, right? So no, I tested uh, perfectly this morning. Meaning, meaning I tested negative.